Hello and welcome to another English edition of my podcast Helium Talk, das Kunstgespräch. My name is Jörg Heikos and this time I had the pleasure of sitting down with artist David Schillinglaw who came around to the studio in Hamburg to record this episode. David has been showing with us since I invited him to join the Millantor Gallery in 2013, which in that year I supported as the artistic director of the project. He then had a great solo show at Helium Cowboy in 2015 and is part of the lineup of many important group shows of my gallery here in Hamburg since. This time he was visiting Hamburg to release a print edition with the charity Viva Conagua. We talk about this in more detail in this episode. We also speak about artists supporting charities in general, his work and the meaning of language as part of it, the times we live in, man, we even get to include Brexit and Hitler in a slightly off excursion somewhere in the middle of our conversation. I hope you'll enjoy this one. As always, please let me know your thoughts by sending me an email to hello at heliumtalk.com. And of course, please connect with me on my website heliumtalk.com or on Instagram. The handle is at heliumtalk, of course. Facebook, sure. You can find us there as well. Let's see how long that still works for any of us. It's facebook.com slash heliumtalk. All right, let's get this started. David and I dug right into it by covering his very special art project, The Dirty Paradise. Helium talk. Helium talk. Helium talk. Do you want more coffee? This no, I'm all right. Got some. Yeah, it's kind of a collective. I mean, there's a whole story behind it. If you want, I can tell you the proper story. Yeah. But it's um, essentially, it's kind of a project. And every time something happens with it, it changes. So sometimes it's a publisher. Sometimes it's a gallery, sometimes it's a blog. And actually the show in May, I'm calling it, the title is the, in, the Institute of Dirty Paradise. So in a way, by giving it another name, I'm interested in how context and media can change depending on how you define it. Yeah. So if you, if you call something a museum, when does it become a museum? Who, who decides that? When does something become a, di a, a an institution or a collective or a charity or a publisher. So it started without any real end point. Mm -hmm. And as it grows and develops, it changes its form. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's something I do as a labor of love. I do it because I, f I feel the need to. It takes myself away from my own work in a healthy way. Yeah. So uh, like it's, it's called the Dirty Paradise? Yeah, the Dirty Paradise. And the reason it's called that is I was in Mexico about three years ago yeah. and I was really in paradise. Like, like, you know how you'd imagine coconut trees on a white beach, yeah. <laughs> but every day there was so much shit on the beach, yeah. toothbrushes, flip-flop, bottles, syringes. Like some of this stuff was disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And some of the bottles were from China. And I remember thinking, wow, bottles from China are ending up in Mexico. And I was saying to my girlfriend, ah, another day in dirty paradise. So dirty paradise became a kind of, mantra or like a description of the planet mm -hmm. one extreme is what you think of as paradise which also has other connotations to the afterlife and a sense of heaven mm -hmm. but the other side is dirty which is also interesting because dirt can be clean dirt is earth yeah. dirt is what you grow vegetables in so for me it's almost like this uh, oxymoron a dirty paradise is a funny way to describe planet earth because it is paradise but it's also quite dirty And it was the first time I thought of doing it as a collective zine or project. 
I um I just thought it sounded like a a name of a brand almost. It sounded like oh, come to the Dirty Paradise show. It just sounded like it already existed. Yeah. Um, and actually, when I got back to London, I did a job, which I didn't didn't want to do. It was like a, a normal sort of. Sometimes as an artist, you get asked asked to do these commercial jobs. Like basically, you're decorating a room for yeah. a rich couple, and I didn't want to do the job. But then I had this light bulb moment of like ah okay, I'll do this job. And the money from it, I'm going to start Dirty Paradise. So it was like I did the job for free, and mm -hmm. I gave all the money to this okay. this um, project. But would you consider? I mean, you're doing a lot of um, work that goes in the direction of you know sort of supporting others who who are in need or that you where you find a purpose in. Like you worked for Vivo Canagua here in Hamburg right now, and yes. before you went with them to Africa too. Yep. Um, you when we met years ago. You already had your own little project that you did in Africa? That wasn't mine. I was working with a project called Wide Open Walls yeah. in the Gambia. I've, yeah, I've been lucky to to work on lots of different projects like that where you get to go to mm -hmm. a place and use art as a a way of helping, which mm -hmm. is actually quite strange because like, what does art actually do? Yeah, I know. And honestly, I've done to some of those projects in refugee camps mm -hmm. or developing in inverted commas, parts of the world. And I come back a little bit confused. Like, who was that for? Was that for me to put on my Instagram and look cool? Because mm -hmm. there's nothing more cool than painting a township in South Africa because it looks like you're really doing something. Mm -hmm. Was it for the people who live there who don't know who you are or don't even have the internet to take pictures on Instagram? Mm -hmm. Or was it for the, in, uh, the, the charity you're working for? And sometimes there's a ambiguity there, like who's benefiting from this art? Yeah. And honestly, some of those projects I come home thinking, oh, I won't do that again. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of energy, a lot of money, someone's money. And for what? Basically looking after kids, painting a wall, being a babysitter. And then I also have other moments where I'm like, no, that really did help. Um, and it's not always clear why sometimes it works, but there's moments where you're painting a mural in a weird refugee situation. And suddenly you see like the parents are smiling because their kids are having fun painting a wall or even a 25 year old guy who's been sitting on that wall smoking cigarettes all day is suddenly teaching kids how to paint something blue. It's really one of those few things that the technique of painting a wall, anyone can do it really. If you're given a little bit of direction, like this is blue paint, that's a blue square, paint sure, it blue. Yeah. Yeah. But then the collective endeavor, when everyone does it together and you stand back after a week, you look at something that becomes a monument. It becomes a social sculpture. It becomes a, a human artifact. The yeah. building is the art yeah, yeah. and it becomes a landmark. And honestly, you leave and sometimes you, you see the pride and people being like, I did that. Yeah, you have you have to be careful that it doesn't go in the direction of charity tourism. You know, like there's a lot of absolutely. You know, that when it, you, I think Vivo Canagua, for example, by now in Hamburg has the problem that they are often seen as people who do like parties and great events and go down to Africa to have primarily fun. You know, it's of course when you're inside, it's different. I'm I'm not judging this. I'm just saying this, this is what it looks like for many many people mm -hmm. when you do those things. And the same with you know, sort of I try to. To do something with what I can 
have to offer. There's a few things I have to offer that might help, you know, sort of to create awareness, basically. I think the, 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 the biggest thing that we as an artist can do is either donate a piece of work that it gets auctioned off for charity. So like there's like direct money that can go into some projects or create awareness um, and help this to be seen. I think when, 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 you know, I've seen your trucks that you've done, the truck that you've done, it's an, it's an amazing piece. And I yeah. think that will, you know, sort of will be shared and shared and shared. Also that, that creates a lot of awareness. Well, that's so. a good example, actually, because that truck that's yeah. used to dig the wells in Africa, if I hadn't painted it, that truck would just look like another industrial truck. Yeah. And when I painted it, and really I was just decorating it. Yeah, that's sure, all I'm sure. doing is, well, is making it colorful. Yeah. But then especially the children, they see this truck and it's got big eyes on the front. It looks like something from a Disney movie. Mm -hmm. And it has this friendly, attractive, uh, less industrial feel to it. And in a way that function of the artist, it's not so much that you're making art so much as you're just decorating things mm -hmm. that need a bit of help because it can look really industrial and really hard and mm -hmm. art can soften it and make it a little bit more attractive. So yeah, it, it, there is a function there, but it's, it is also easy to feel like I did such a good job <laughs> as this like, I don't know, Western European artist going to Africa to paint. It's like, nah, no one needed you to go and paint that. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> it's really a luxury. What you just did is a luxury, but it feels like for me doing a project like that with mm -hmm. Viva Con Agua, it gives me cosmic, tokens mm -hmm. you know in a way when you're an artist you're almost one avenue is making money which everyone has to do because sure. you've got to eat and pay your rent but there is a drive to make money because every time you sell a painting it should almost make more like be the value should go up mm -hmm. then there's another thing of like fame and your ego becoming bigger and people recognizing what you do and that's another route but honestly both of those things m often make me feel a bit strange because what are you actually searching for the money or fame the other it makes me feel a lot better when i'm doing something that's not about me mm -hmm. it's using my skills and it might eventually come around and make me money um but it's it's a different kind of reward it's a different kind of currency when you're doing something that's for another reason yeah but i think that's that's I mean, it's a struggle of these times, and we 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 talk about this in every single podcast. I think is that how you use the um, how we are now using the internet to 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 help us uh, in these two goals, getting more known and making some money. I've been talking with a friend of mine about. Well, actually, not with a friend of mine, with my father recently about retiring at some point. You know, because I mean, he retired almost twenty years ago. Uh, my brother will retire in like, I think 10, 12 years. And I said, I will never retire because there's ain't no need for me to retire because I want to continue doing art until basically I can't do it anymore. And you know, what's the purpose then? Um, and, but it's also about the money. And I said, well, my, my goal is, you know, sort of be in a comfortable situation when other people go into retirement that my art and I am known well enough that I can live easily off it. So I probably don't have to do every project. I don't have to do a show every year. I don't have to paint like, don't have to sell like 20, 30, 40 paintings to make a living every year. But, you know, sort of that you, I can ease comfortably. There'll be people that buy my work. And how do you get there? 
in these times, especially where everybody tries to create awareness. And then like a project like uh, painting a truck for Viva Con Agua uh, in Africa uh, will, of course, help you being seen. Um, whereas uh, and everybody's struggling basically for the same result with, with different uh, ways and ideas uh, how to do that. So th we're currently in, this, in a state where artists go on big street art festivals to paint a 30 meter high uh, building. You know, make the biggest building, which ends up with a tiny screen yeah. and ends up with hopefully getting a lot of likes. There's a totally different pressure. Now, when I started to become an artist, basically you start out becoming an artist knowing that there's a very, very tiny chance that we'll ever be able to live off it. And now I think if you start out as an artist, you see other artists who, you know, go to get well known and get, you know, paid, get maybe interesting jobs and exhibitions. You see them online and you think, I can do that. Because basically everybody can do that. Everybody can create attention for yourself, making good photos, making good content, posting it outside. But um, but I think it would still be what you said earlier. The, the fame does not come from the pictures and the amount of followers that you have on Instagram. It also becomes probably about the content. I, and I was, I'm coming back to what I was actually trying to say already in the beginning. I think that you are one of the... I won't say few artists, but I think there's not many artists that actually use their their craft and their skills um, constantly for many, many years to create awareness, not just for you, but also for other things. I feel obliged to. Yeah. I feel like if you're an artist, any kind, if you're a dancer, musician, painter, you're really, you don't even have to have a lot of money. Right. I'm not talking about success in terms of money. I'm talking about that idea that if you wake up in the morning and go to bed at night and in between you do what you want to do, mm -hmm. you've kind of won. You, yeah. you, you, you've kind of succeeded. And I don't have lots of money, but I do have that luxury of every day. I think, what can I do today that's going to benefit me tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And that's a difficult thing to do for some people because it's not like I've got a job. Yeah. I can, I hire myself every day and I fire myself every night. Yeah. But in a way that for me, that freedom, I feel like I have to do something to give back to the universe, if you like. Mm -hmm. So like you said, often as an artist, you'll get asked to donate artwork for charities. There is a power to say no, because mm -hmm. I get asked a lot to donate yeah. artwork. But because you can't say yes to everything, but there is definitely room to mm -hmm. do things that are giving back, whether it's donating a bit of art or donating some time or even making artwork about about an issue. So, for example, last year I did a book called The Mechanics of Happiness, mm -hmm. and it was kind of a best of. It was like my greatest hits as a book. But the the theme or the the issue that I was sort of grappling with was mental health. My mental health, your mental health, everyone's mental health. The planet has yes, mental health now. problems. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, the exhibition, I gave a percentage of sales to a mental health charity. For me, in 2018, 19, that is obliged. If you're, if you're an artist and you've got an exhibition in a major city mm -hmm. and you're selling art, you should probably give 10% of it to a charity. Like it just makes me feel, and the gallery as well, you should both consider that mm -hmm. because you're basically making cream cakes for people to eat with their eyes. So if you're going to make a cream cake mm -hmm. and someone's going to eat it with their eyes, maybe make it about people that need some help. But I think you need to get... <sighs> I, I I agree and I disagree because uh, not just from a from a from a, 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 a I think that's that's a great thing to do and uh, and uh, and I understand where you're coming from, but artists 
and galleries, they have to make money to make a living. And it's not like they're making always so much that they can afford to give percentages away. So what you have to, if you do this, you have to find the people that actually support this, being able to do this. What, what, there's a show you sell like, I don't know, three works and you give 10% away. It doesn't always work. It yeah, doesn't, it's not and then, always the And then right. both sides, you know, the gallery and you made a big loss. And then yeah. like three months later, the artist may still continue to paint, but the gallery closes its doors because it can't pay the, and the rent and stuff like that. I'm so not you have just to, talking about money yeah, though as well. Yeah. I'm talking about the attention. If you've yeah. got the attention, if you're waving your hands saying, look at this, mm -hmm. look at this. Mm -hmm. I feel a bit like the, the greatest art being made today yeah. is making art about things that aren't, maybe um, very easy to talk about yeah. and aren't very um, comfortable to talk about. So for example, Ai Weiwei. Yeah. Right. So his, he had made a film last year called Human Flow. And even though it's a film that's at the cinema, it's a piece of art. Sure. He's just made a movie that's a mm -hmm. piece of art. And for, for me, he's making artwork about migration and human movement through the mm -hmm. earth and refugees and displacement. and. And it, it, it just makes sense that if you're an artist that's got a, a, an audience who are going to look at or listen to what you've got to say, even if you don't make money out of it, you should at least draw some attention to things other than just yourself. Because mm -hmm. that's really what an artist yeah. is doing. They're talking about themselves. Like an artist is a, a filter of their ideas mm -hmm. and it's always going to be about them. Yeah. Every time you sure. make a painting, it's about you. But I feel like a, if you have an opportunity to, jump at it to, to try and almost um, complement an issue. Mm -hmm. It's difficult though, because it can be really patronizing and a bit like, oh yeah, now I'm going to make an art project about dot, dot, dot. But I feel like there's so many ways to do that, that if you don't do it, I think you should question why you're not. Because otherwise, it, for me as an artist, otherwise it makes me feel like I'm making swimming pools to hang on people's walls. Because mm -hmm. really art is a luxury item. Sure. It's a middle-class um, object mm -hmm. that you buy to almost prove to yourself and other people that you're sophisticated. And it kind of comes out of, I think, as far as I understand it, like modern art comes out of this middle-class, the, after the industrial revolution, people had more money, they wanted to demonstrate their sophistication. Mm -hmm. So not only am I wealthy enough to afford a Picasso, but I know why a Picasso is valuable, mm -hmm. right? And I get a little bit frustrated when I go to art galleries or museums and I see this, even if it's amazing art, I look on the wall and think, so what? It's just a, here's, a, here's another example. One of the things that I think about is how do blind people mm -hmm. appreciate art? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, yeah, I'm making visual things for visual people yeah. and I want to sell it. Yeah. But at a certain point, I'm like, okay, how can I do more with this? So could I then use the same skills, the same attitude, the same sensibilities, the same education, all this stuff that I've spent 36 years collecting. Now, can I paint a truck mm -hmm. for a charity in Africa? And when I do that, it's, all, it's, diff, it's, it's more difficult because painting a truck is not like painting a canvas in a nice white gallery for people to drink white wine and go, oh, that's nice. I'm in a weird, in like, slum in Ethiopia painting a wall, it's, it's not as easy, but it's more rewarding. Yeah. And it's cosmic. I feel like the universe hears it actually. Cause I do, for example, this trip to Hamburg, mm -hmm. I came to release a print for Viva Conagua. Yeah. That was because after the trip to Ethiopia, I said to Michael Fritz, mm -hmm. big up Michael Fritz, 
amazing guy. I said, let's do something. Yeah. Right, we've got people now know that I'm working with your charity. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I want to make people drinking water, uh, help people get drinking water. Let's do a screen print. Mm -hmm. You sell the screen prints, you keep all the money. Mm -hmm. And the, the maths is simple. It's 150 euros a screen print. Mm -hmm. There's 50 screen prints. I know. Seven and a half thousand euros mm -hmm. is exactly the same amount of money you use to dig one well, which creates water for like 2,000 people. So the, the maths is so obvious. Mm -hmm. So we did it. Now, after we made that, Mm -hmm. decision and that plan then the hotel i'm staying in scandec mm -hmm. then they said oh while you're here will you paint a mural in our hotel and we'll pay you and i thought there we go that's <laughs> that's the payment yeah that's payment that's so viva conagra getting all the prints yeah. i don't make any money from that yeah. but i now spent two days painting a wall in a hotel where i'm staying for free anyway it's a nice lovely ethical hotel sure and that's the universe paying you back mm -hmm. there yeah. you go yeah, <laughs> but it's nice that it works out that way. Yeah, yeah. Is it a print for for the game, for the match, for uh, or just for Viva Conagra? It's just for Viva Conagra. Okay. It's almost like a poster. Actually, it oh. says at the bottom, "Water for all." Okay, cool. And it's um, <clears throat> it's a kind of combination of the designs I made while I was in yeah. Ethiopia, and it sort of tells the story. There's even a water pump on it. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's an illustration mm -hmm. for what Viva Conagra are about. But it's also quite loose. It looks like a board game. Um, and I just, I really love it because it, it makes me feel like I'm illustrating something that needs illustration. It, it, talking about something that's difficult to talk about. Yeah. If you just talk about water in Africa mm -hmm. and the amount of people that die from diarrhea every day, yeah. oh man, it's depressing and it's hard. You make a colorful picture about it, mm -hmm. sell it for someone to hang on their wall. And I also really love that idea that without giving people emotional blackmail, but it's like, come on, 150 euros, that's a couple of nights out. You could help children drink fresh water. Mm -hmm. It's like a, an obvious equation for me. It just makes sense. I like this a lot more than just everything in our society gets instantly oversaturated. Like Facebook now with their donate now button, every mm. time you know I make a post, they want me to make a donate donation project of it. Yeah, I there's think, too What's many the point? ways of trying to get you to feel sorry yeah. about. It's difficult because I realize that you don't want to pull on people's heartstrings too much. Some people don't want to talk about mm -hmm. A, money, and to B, don't, like donating it to people. Yeah. It's just, they just want to enjoy themselves. Mm -hmm. And what I realize is that it, it It kind of makes people feel good when they help other people, even though if they don't want to initiate it themselves, mm -hmm. there's like a term that I love, which is uh, selfish acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. So when I do something for someone else, it makes me feel good. Sure. Like they might feel good, but I definitely feel good. And it's interesting. I think you're saying about the internet, how that changes because people nowadays, we, we feel responsible for people in the sort of global community if there's a tsunami then we all like try and donate money or people do you feel responsible and yet you don't help the homeless person who's living at the end of your street so there's a weird thing about charity now where we're called upon because of a international disaster where you're like donate now you know and you it pulls on your heartstring you're like, oh man these kids in africa really need my help mm -hmm. but then you walk down the street and The guy who's sitting in a shop window, he's got no money at all. You just walk past him, ignore him. Mm -hmm. Even sometimes in London, you see people lying in the gutter. You're like, he might be dead. And people are just stepping over him. Yeah. And it's a funny 
uh, ethical thing to get your head around. Like, who do you help and how do you help them? And I just feel like it doesn't really matter who you help or how you, as long as you try to do something, whether it's for the guy who's sleeping rough, Mm -hmm. go and give him a pound. People are like, oh, but he might spend it on drink. Yeah, yeah, let him have a drink. He's sleeping in the gutter. Give him a beer. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone deserves a beer, it's that guy sleeping in the gutter. But I just feel like you either do or you don't, you know, everyone's Mm -hmm. got their own agenda about that. Yeah, we're privileged to be able to do it in this way, you know. I've got a thing that if someone asked me on the way here, actually, Mm -hmm. some guy, and that's different if someone's sitting there Mm -hmm. and they're not talking, they just got a cup. That's your choice. But Mm -hmm. some guy actually came up to me just half an hour ago and was like, Mm -hmm. he had 20 cents in his hand. And I knew when he walked towards me with 20 pence in his hand, he wasn't offering me 20 cents. (laughs) So I knew what he was about to say. I took my headphones out and he's like, hey man, I'm... I've really got no money. I'm really hard up. And I I have this sort of in my head, if I don't know how much money's in my wallet, I don't deserve it. Yeah. So I opened my wallet and I knew I had some change. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you can have my change, mate. And I think I had like one euro 50. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like a coffee. And it made wow. his morning, man. Where do you get a coffee? For Half, a coffee. Yeah. Half a coffee. Half a coffee. Half a coffee I got him. <laughs> and and yeah, he went away feeling slightly more human probably. Not, it didn't change his life one euro 50 mm. but he had an interaction we had some eye contact i gave him something and it's actually sometimes that it's not the amount of money you're giving no. it's the attention you're giving to something but it's difficult man sure you're not going to save the world by giving don't donating some money to a charity mm. but i do feel like it makes you feel better i feel there's something in that i, I feel better and i think the universe hears it mm-hmm. or sees it some sort of entity senses your goodwill yeah. and will repay you it's a it's a good motivation when you always have the universe <laughs> in the in the back that, you can you call know. it god if you want i don't like the word god it's too small yeah. the word god it should, it's got to be at least eight letters yeah it's yeah yeah well it's not about the letters it's also just one you know so uh, it's one directional you know so like yeah. where it's the universe is like it's huge and there's no end to it you know um, but okay we, we will not have a religious uh talking there's definitely not, <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah talking about uh, uh, the, the religion and uh, and, and changes um I, I hate to ask you this but also i was really curious uh, uh you know sort of getting into you're smiling you know already i know uh, what you're gonna ask yeah. me so how does how will how will it that affect you like the brexit how will it uh, affect the art and artists i mean now you're coming to germany and you're exhibiting here in shows you think people will not ask you to come to europe other european countries anywhere because it's too complicated with the invoicing and i don't know yeah, actually yeah. i i do wonder in one in one mind <laughs> i didn't think we talk about brexit <laughs> uh okay well first of all we my, can we can keep it short hey my girlfriend's french yeah. and she actually worries whether she'll have to yeah whether her living arrangement would change mm-hmm. or whether if I'm going back to France to see her family, mm-hmm. do I have to get a visa? Mm-hmm. Like when I go to America, you've got to get a visa. Yeah. Or Ethiopia, you've got to get a visa. Do I suddenly have to get a visa to come mm-hmm. to Hamburg? But listen, it's gone on for two years and nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. I reckon it will go on another two years and nothing will happen. I think, and we could debate all sorts of things about it because ultimately, there's positives and negatives to both sides. Mm-hmm. That's why people are so divided with it. Sure. But I think it's a bit, a bit of smoke and mirrors. I think it's a big distraction that for me personally, unless I was working for a big European company, like a bank mm-hmm. that might change its location, for example, or its employees, or unless I'm a self-employed electrician, 
which some of my friends are, mm -hmm. who it does affect, mm -hmm. I don't think it was going to affect me. I hope it's not because I feel like as an artist, again, I'm self-employed, I travel a lot. It's expected of me that I constantly go from different countries to different countries. I wonder how it's going to affect me. And at the moment, and for the last two years, I've just thought it's a lot of hot air mm -hmm. and it's a lot of stuff in the news. Like what else would we be talking about if it had never happened? For two years, everyone's talking about Brexit when really the stuff that we should be talking about is why we're selling guns to Saudi Arabia yeah. who are bombing the Yemen. Like, mm -hmm. and then we give Yemen aid. The, these situations that are going on in the world, they're really important. Brexit, I think, is a, a big pantomime mm -hmm. full of politicians who are like reality TV show stars. And I watch the news sometimes like I'm watching a reality TV show. Mm -hmm. I don't really believe it. I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of other things going on that we're not talking about. Whenever you see something in the news, I always think, right, that's what's in the news. What are they not telling me? that's even more important yeah. that this is hiding. Yeah, I think politics are getting- Did that know, answer your question? Well, I'm, not a politi poli I'm not that political. I, I wasn't expecting really an answer that was like, oh yeah, it's gonna change, affect me and this and this terms. I was just like, you know, trying to, I think the times we're living in now, and I think you're, um, that's why I'm also talking with you about it, because mm. I think you're a, a, a very um, an engaged artist. You just look what's around you. You're in a way political. Um, we're all political. You have yeah, to be. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, so many are today is not. It's just about. Yeah, but even being an artist is, yeah. there's this funny thing that going back to that Dirty Paradise yeah. magazine, that's not political in any sense, but I think being an artist mm. is a political statement. Yeah. Because you're not getting a nine to five job, mm -hmm. I still pay tax, sure. but I don't require any financial help. I am self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're doing, whether you're a farmer or a musician or someone who makes soap, it doesn't matter the kind of art you make or an artisan. If you're just making shoes, you're, you're deciding, I'm not going to go and work for whoever, British Petroleum. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go and do it by myself. And I think that's a political stance. So yeah, I'm not political, but I think everything you do is political. Where you buy your shoes, yeah. where you buy your water, mm -hmm. where you buy your petrol, even if you don't have a car, these decisions that you make, they're tiny little political decisions, which will ultimately affect your environment and your community and your personal journey. Mm -hmm. um, Personally, I'm a bit of an anarchist. I think fuck Brexit. Brexit is a game that's played by politicians. Mm -hmm. And my opinion is we should be moving closer together, not yeah. further apart. We should be building bridges, not walls, all of that stuff. Yeah. Free, I don't I think agree, there should be borders, yeah. but that's massively difficult because mm -hmm. evil people take advantage of that. So I understand that there's arguments on both sides. And actually, if I'm honest, I don't fully understand it all. Because as soon as they start talking about economy, yeah. I don't know about economy. As soon as they start talking about like how much money is invested into the European Union, it's weird because it's been going on since before I was even born, I think. The, the move towards mm. that and then the move away from it, I feel a bit like a child sometimes sitting in a classroom and the teacher's talking about things that I haven't studied. Yeah, but I think that's, that's I mean, that's, I think it's a good, good description because we're, I think politics and politicians are probably have always been, uh, but I think the in these days you, you I, I personally get the sense that it's stronger than ever. Uh, 
actually really disconnected from the reality that we've basically been discussing. People starving, people having hungry, people moving closer together to face the changes that the world changes, uh, uh, world faces, you know, I mean, climate, uh, all these things. We, we have to actually move together, you know, so like a big, big difference between the super rich and the super poor and more and more people getting poor on this earth. So we should actually be much, much closer. While at the same time, you have a feeling politics moves more and more away from the people. Brexit for me is a good example of that because even though they ask the people, you know, they ask the people to say yes or no, but it's much more complex than that. Yeah. You cannot you cannot answer this question. And they also Should we move out of the EU with a yes or a no? There's so much in between. Yeah, they didn't educate people as yeah. well. There's the famous bus where they put on the side of yeah. the bus how much money we give to European yeah, Union every week or whatever, mm -hmm. which we could save and put to the mm -hmm. NHS. And no, no one really told the, the people, whoever that is, because that's yeah. a lot of people, yeah. no one told the people how it was going to affect them. Mm -hmm. How it's going to affect education, mm -hmm. healthcare, your job, your taxes, all of that stuff. They, we probably needed a year of seminars, mm -hmm. an online, like a kind of TED talk mm -hmm. situation where it's like, right, let's talk to you about how this decision is going to affect mm -hmm. you. And it just happened so quickly. And it's kind of hilarious. I think it's so absurd. Yeah. The only good thing that will come out of the political climate right now, which is quite strange, you know, with, I won't, I don't even want to talk about America, but yeah. their ridiculous clown-like leader, mm -hmm. it's terrible and it's quite depressing, but it will create good art. I feel like there's some really good music. Punk, punk music's going to come back yeah. and there's going to be some good music, art, comedy. There's a lot of good comedy that reacts true, to yeah. bad politics. Most of my political education mm -hmm. comes out of comedians. Mm -hmm. I've, uh, that's a weird thing that maybe, maybe that's something in that, that, The, the news, I don't trust the news anymore yeah. because I see that news and a lot of media is wrapped up in politics, whereas comedians cut through the bullshit. And they, even though it's something that's like a sick joke, mm -hmm. somehow it can tell you an absolute truth. And art as well, I feel like painting, even though painting is really um, a strange medium, and maybe it's out of date because maybe the greatest artists now are making like computer games. Maybe. But I feel like painting and drawing has certain qualities about it that are like quite vulnerable and quite insecure. Mm -hmm. There's no full stop in a painting. You're not saying a statement, you're kind of alluding to a, a whole kind of mood. Yeah. And I feel like often paintings for me, in the same way that poetry and music can talk about things that politics can't. There's a language of politics. There's a language of economics. Mm -hmm. There's a language of law. There's a language for almost all the different ways we measure our experiences. And none of them really talk to me. And I'm frustrated by it because there aren't, I can't think of any politicians that I look forward to listening to. Mm -hmm. Not like comedians or musicians. Like I listen to podcasts and radio shows by yeah. Bob Dylan. Yeah. Uh, certain comedians, a, a lot of comedians yeah, sure. actually. Yeah. And I look forward to it like it's my favorite TV show. I wish there were certain politicians who had the same energy yeah. as comedians. And maybe the future of politics, if, the, if we're going to find some role models, maybe it's some of those comedians or musicians need to become politicians. But there's that idea, isn't there, that anyone who wants the job shouldn't be allowed the job. Because if you want the job as being the leader, yeah. you're probably a moron. I've been, I, had, I had this discussion recently um, 
with some friends. Uh, you know, it's about it's about the political elite in, in in Germany. I mean, you know, German politics are have you know sort of gone astray as well in these past years. It's a weird weird development in a country like Germany that you have to look at. You know, seeing like the right wings rising again. You know, I mean, it's just it's just it's just not understandable. No but again. No. <laughs> no again. Yeah, there was this quote recently that you know sort of remembering. Auschwitz cannot prevent Auschwitz from happening again. It's not just about remembering things, it's about acting upon it. And we're just not, you know, in many ways in Germany. Um, but okay, that's, that's, that's... Wow, you're bringing up some light conversations. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan on this. But wait, I, wanted, I wanted to go to, to another point. We've talked about this. We've talked about a couple of people that we know. Yeah. Like, like look, the guys who, for example, who do these charities like Viva Con Agua or Club Kinder, they are politically very active. They are smart they are different they think out of the box and i would you know we had this discussion i would i, would, I wanted to take these guys i would love to see these guys forming a party mm. and going into politics because that would definitely change well i think they i was talking to someone the other night at yeah. viva conagua who's like a, he studied political science mm -hmm. and they do employ people who are their job is to almost help enter the arena mm -hmm. of politics Because in order to make change, yeah. you have to be in that arena. You have to be reading from, like, speaking the language of politics. You can't just be an artist or a volunteer for a charity and expect the world to change around you. You've got to get in and change it from within. Yeah, but so I guess maybe that is the future for, for real changes, yeah. for those people to nurture a political power of their own and create a party. Um, but it's difficult because as soon as you step into those shoes mm -hmm. and become that, people are going to look at you and go, oh yeah, what about this? What about that? Because no, it's, it's an impossible job. You're basically creating rules for people yeah. to agree or disagree with. That, that's never going to be easy. Yeah, I think it's, you know, sort of getting back to the point where you create awareness and try to, you know, sort of get, um, get new and different ideas onto the political platform and into the political discussion, but also into, that's what we're already doing, but also where things are being changed. So yeah. like, a, um, like a, when we talked about Michael Fritz, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether he's the right person for it, but him running in a, you know, so like in an office, being in office somewhere. I'd vote for Michael. Yeah, I think a lot of people <laughs> vote for him. Would definitely change things and behaviors and you know and he doesn't even have to necessarily have to speak the full language he has to know the lingo mm. but but i think this can also change with different generations you know and uh and moving into this so you know who wants to be there's always the question who wants to be a politician you not know? me no not me neither you know of my own party i'm a i'm the president of a party of one yeah but what what i find interesting right i'm a bit obsessed with human history yeah and sometimes the way i make sense of the problems of the world is i just step back a bit yeah And I think, bloody hell, this has all happened for thousands of years and at points a lot worse than this. Yeah. Actually, things are really good right now. Sure. People think they're not, yeah. but people die a lot less. In fact, I read somewhere that suicide yeah. kills more people than war, murder, and terrorism combined. Mm. So the biggest threat to you is you. But we don't think that. We think terrorists are going to kill us or murderers are going to kill us or we're in war actually more people die from suicide. So they, there's certain facts like that that kind of make me feel better about it. And also the, the human experience, right, is, is developing so much. You know, there's seven and a half billion people alive. 
if you go back like thousands of years, we're not that different to how a hunter-gatherer caveman was. We've got the same brain, mm -hmm. we've got the same body. All that's changed around us is the environment, we wear clothes, we have electricity, these things change. But the person that you are and I am is essentially the same as our hunter-gatherer ancestors who were living in a cave. Now there's this idea called Maslow, um, Dunbar's Law. Dunbar. Dunbar was a scientist or, a, I don't know what, what he was. His name was Dunbar. Dunbar, D-U-N-B-A-R. Dunbar's Law. He said that you can only know 150 people. It's And he said, the human brain can only really create 150 intimate social relationships. The way he describes an intimate social relationship is someone, if you meet them by accident in a bar, you can join them uninvited for a drink. Okay. There's no awkward like, hey, mm -hmm. York, let's have a drink. Yeah. Once you know 150 people personally like that, it's very difficult to m know more people. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you make a new friend or you a new person joins your company, you're probably gonna forget another person. Yeah. Now that's interesting because that when we were ancient hunter-gatherer caveman, there were only 150 people in our tribe. Everyone was famous. Mm -hmm. You knew everyone. And in fact, a lot of ancient tribes, the, the men in the tribe would look after all the children. Yeah. It's not just like my family, your family. Mm -hmm. It was like we're one tribe. Yeah. And that's actually kind of interesting because the roots of that tribalism, that nationalism, like this is my tribe, that goes back to when we lived in caves. But now we do it with millions of people, people that you don't know. You don't know all German people, but, no. but because they're German, they're like you. And that idea of German is like a, an imagined hallucination. You, you're all hallucinating that, oh, we're all German, we're all the same. No, you're not all the same, but you all live in Germany, you all speak German, and you all abide by the German laws. But actually, you're all completely different people. And it's almost impossible to think that all Germans would react the same way or be happy under the same conditions. And it's like this experiment, the human experiment, it's almost using the same, the laws of knowing 150 people, mm -hmm. but putting that into the context of seven and a half billion people. So of course it's gonna go wrong. Of course it's gonna go crazy because people think that they're all kind of in the same tribe or the same team, but we're not. We're all quite um, local. We're actually a very local creature. We respond to knowing just a few people, but we're now told to think global. Yeah. So it's like the difference between a local dialogue and a global dialogue. And I'm not sure if we are really able to be that global, really. Mm. Because you don't know the person that you're talking about who has a different political opinion. Most people that voted to leave Brexit, now I don't think we should have left Europe, but I bet if I sat in a room with that person and had a beer, I'd probably get on. Mm -hmm. Probably quite, probably nice people. You'd probably get on because in that local situation, we just hunter-gatherers sitting in a cave talking about life. But as soon as you think global, you're like, nah, you're, 
you're from this place and I don't like you yeah. because I'm from this place. But yeah, but that's uh, but that is one of the big challenges that we're facing these days because I mean these uh, days people uh, define their the, this the, the circle of friends that you say we only can know 150 people. Like I mean there are only very few people out there with uh, with with uh, with less than 2,000 Facebook friends, for example. Yeah. And so, so those people you don't really know them, no, know but it becomes name. a currency. Yeah. Because also. Well, if you look at people online, you're like, oh, you've got this many followers. Mm. You have this much social value. It's almost yeah. like your, your online presence or your online community is a currency. Mm -hmm. It literally is for some people. Like if you've got over a million people following you, yeah. companies will come in and say, if you just put a bottle of this water in your podcast, we'll give you money or water for free. So it is a currency, but it's not real. Yeah, It's not like... It's not, I don't know what it is. I went on a bit of a rant about the 150 people, but it amazes, no, but it's a good point. It amazes me that the, mm -hmm. you, when you walk down the street, in central mm -hmm. London, there's certain streets like Oxford Street, it's yeah. so big, you will see more people in an hour than my ancient ancestors saw in their entire life. Yeah. And I don't know if our brains are ready for it. It's happened so quickly, especially with the internet. 15 years ago, I didn't have a smartphone. Facebook didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Instagram didn't exist. And now not only does it exist, but it's every hour, every 15 minutes, you're checking in. Mm -hmm. Oh, this person follows me. Who are they? This person like this. Honestly, I turn my notifications off. If I need, if I have any peace in the day, it's when my phone's off. Yeah, I think, but it's something that, that we have to relearn again. I mean, I'm, I'm, I turn my phone off. Uh, I like to leave it somewhere else. I actually, uh, I actually invested into something to 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 even prevent me from using it more. I I just I got I got a watch. I didn't have a watch for many many years. Now I have a watch where I can look up the time because I used to look up the time on my telephone. Yeah, and there's always something happening on it, and everybody does that. And I have many friends who don't even turn it off at night. Yeah, it's the first thing in the morning. One of my eyes is yeah, still glued yeah. shut. <laughs> from sleep and the other eye is like yeah but look at this yeah, yeah, and I'm like oh yeah. it's like a battle of wills half yeah. of me knows it's wrong and the other half is like yeah but I'm, I'm just looking at the news yeah I know <laughs> and, and the, one, one very good excuse is also I need this for work yeah and yes in a way I do you know but when you when you talked about currency the thing is Yes, it's it's great to have 10,000, 20,000, 50,000. I think for a gallery or for somebody, you know, sort of for brand, an artist can also be a brand, uh, probably is a brand. It's it's very good. I've I've been stuck to this basically to the magical and I think that's the universe telling me something when you're saying to you. I've stuck to like the 2000 plus for many, many years, for a long time. It's growing. It's, you know, it's always the same level. But I run a pretty successful business with a gallery. I I I feel myself that I'm as an artist, I'm more successful than many others because I am known. I have exhibitions. I actually sell my work. I can live of what I'm doing, um, and and for that, it's enough. It's enough for for what I'm doing. I don't need twenty thousand. It could be maybe better or maybe easier or more money coming in. But basically, that's that's what I need. So. Uh, I think the, the, this this currency discussion will also change. It will go hopefully go back into the quality of what you're doing. Well, I think it's interesting how some people don't like. You know, Kanye West only yeah. follows one person yeah. on well, Twitter. Wanker. But yeah, but that that's an. <laughs> I think that's really annoying. Or when some artists go yeah. on Instagram and they don't even put any pictures up, yeah. they use it as a lens to look at other people. Yeah. Or they only follow a few people. I wonder how different it would be if you didn't know how many people followed you. 
So that you take that out of the equation. You're like, we're all on here to look at stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you really need to know how much you are looked at or how many people there are or who likes what? That changes the dialogue. If you take that out of the equation, mm -hmm. it's a, or maybe you just stop at 10,000. If you get 10,000, it's like, yeah, you reach the top. That's it. But that's a bit like money. Mm -hmm. How much money do you need? Like people who have billions, yeah. I do question sometimes whether maybe if once you get 10 million pounds, that's it. You are not allowed any more. Mm -hmm. Anything more goes into the big pot for all the people. Yeah. You can keep earning money. Well done. You're good at business. <laughs> keep earning money, but you only get 10 million yeah. because with 10 million, if you can't survive on 10 million pounds, <laughs> then you've got a problem and you don't deserve any more. Yeah, You'll probably end up, I don't know, starting a, a communist regime, not letting people have more money than they want. Getting back to Kanye West, I, I, th I personally, I think... I Sounds think, like a question, doesn't it? Kanye West? Yeah, Kanye. Kanye West? Um, <laughs> I don't really I, I like don't, him. I think, I think it's... Apparently he it's, smoked DMT. That was what I read yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, Kanye West smoked um, DMT from a poisonous toad. Do you know this drug no, that no. people do? Ayahuasca? No. You've never heard of ayahuasca? No. DMT is actually known as the God molecule okay. and it exists in every living thing. I might be wrong about this. Okay. I'm wrong about loads of stuff. <laughs> and this, this chemical, yeah. I think it's naturally released when you're born and when you die. So this is a, it's a chemical that forms naturally in your body. Mm -hmm. But if you smoke it or you drink it or you take it somehow, because most people go into the jungle with a shaman mm -hmm. and they drink it yeah. and it, you, you trip out, And I think a lot of people shit themselves as well. I, I don't know. It doesn't sound that nice, but you, you basically meet God yeah. and you realize that we're all one and that you, there's a documentary about it called The God Molecule. Okay. And uh, what's, what's interesting is that this is an ancient thing that people in South America did before they go hunting or to channel some sort of cosmic energy to mm -hmm. learn something about themselves and actually get rid of your ego. You realize, I haven't done it, but I'm interested in it. So I've listened to a lot of people who've done it talk and they, apparently you take it and you realize that you're basically dead. Mm -hmm. You're part of a big organism called the human race mm -hmm. or planet earth. So relax because you're nothing. But in that lesson, you realize, wow, because I'm nothing, I'm capable of anything. You know, that it's, it's both kills you and brings you back to life. What's interesting now, is it's becoming like a celebrity, like Burning Man tourist thing where Kanye West goes on Twitter and says, yeah, I did DMT. Or Mike Tyson. Mm -hmm. Mike Tyson does a podcast. Do you know? Yeah, I know, I know. It's called Hot Boxing and he smokes DMT on the podcast. Really? <laughs> it's fucking nuts. Anyway, I think it's interesting. I'd like to do it, but I think I would have liked to do it like a hundred years ago when no one else was doing it. Yeah. It's funny when things become too, if Kanye West does something, mm. I don't think I want to do it anymore. What's no, that? you have to find your own ways. <laughs> find your own drug. Go on, what were you going to say about Kanye West? Though? No, I, no just, guy, it's, not, it's not about him. I mean, I'm not really interested in these, these people. I don't know nothing about them. I've, uh, I've, uh, I'm really, I live a life, uh, sounds, sounds weird or maybe arrogant, but I live a life outside of the celebrity hype. I don't know anyone. Um, really, only people that are important to me or that I think are important. So, I mean, you're a celebrity for me more than Kanye West. You know? oh. And I don't mean uh, to flatter you. 
you. I'm not sure if that's an insult or a no, no, no. But I mean, you know, it's just I'm more interested in what you're doing yeah. professionally. You know, I'm mean, we're yeah. friends. You know, but also, but I mean, I like to see. I like to follow you and see what you're doing. I'm interested in that. I'm not at all interested in all these other people that you know. I, I know what these people stand for and their their meaning. That's what I know. But I'm not interested in who they're married to or whatever. Yeah. And well, that's interesting because some of my favorite yeah. people. Yeah. Let's let's call them celebrities. Yeah. People we celebrate. I don't know about their personal life, right? My favorite podcast to listen yeah. to is by a guy called Blind Boy. Okay. He's an Irish guy. He's a musician. He's an artist. He's a, he's a historian. He's genius. Mm -hmm. I adore his podcast. Okay. He wears a plastic bag on his head. So you don't know what he looks like. And it's ridiculous. It's like a bavaclava. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a terrorist thing, mm -hmm. but it's a really shit supermarket plastic bag with the eyes cut in it. And I, he talks about celebrity mm -hmm. when he started being a pop star with his mm -hmm. musician his band called the rubber bandits it was the first year big brother happened and they didn't want to become that person who was famous for just six months and then was then just like an old silly person who was on mm -hmm. tv so they cover their identity which means he can go into the local supermarket and no one knows who he is equally banksy yeah if banksy could be interviewed on tv about his new girlfriend and his wedding in the Bahamas, mm -hmm. that would only detract from his art. One of the best things about Banksy is that it's happening at a time when we are, you know, the selfie time, the place in, in, in history when everyone is self-obsessed with presenting themselves and their identity with filters, perfectly edited photos. At that particular time in history, mm -hmm. we need a masked superhero. You need someone who you don't know what he looks like. Mm -hmm. You don't know if he's gay, if he's got kids, if he's a vegan, because look at the art. And it's really interesting for me how the best artists for me, and there's a few that overlap. Woody Allen. I love Woody Allen's movies. I don't like or care about his personal life. It's like, leave him out. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I didn't know about his personal life. Yeah. Um, same with certain musicians. It's like, I don't really care what happened last night. Play that song that you made, because I love it. It's actually my song. You wrote it about you, but it's mine. Mm -hmm. Now it's a bit difficult for me to enjoy it because I know that you're a heroin addict or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to separate the art from the artist. And a lot of people don't because it's tantalizing to to create this mythology around the person and the things that they're making. But it's also what artists today learn. I mean, young artists learn that, they, that this kind of has to be, you know, sort of connected with who they are and how that, I mean, the, the whole invention of stories feeds into even Absolutely. more of that. You well, know, some, some of it really works. Some artists yeah. and musicians, I actually like them mm -hmm. and their history, their story more than the music or mm -hmm. the art, because yeah. I love, the picture of them in their studio a hundred years ago or a, a song that they've recorded and it's telling a story. And it's funny you say about that thing, the stories, because that's becoming like the, um, the, the way the internet will sort of yeah. go, that we are all live feeding our, our daily story to the world, which is interesting because it's, it's we think we're free yeah. to do it, yeah. right? Yeah. Look how free I am. Look at me, I'm so free. But actually all that information is yeah. adding to your marketing, how people can sell you shit. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because if we did, if we were told by the government of the world, mm -hmm. you have to do this, right? You have to buy a phone and you have to put in where you are, who you are, what you ate. Mm -hmm. And every day 
upload stories. I'm in Hamburg, look at me, I'm doing this. If we had to do it, we wouldn't do it mm -hmm. because we would feel like we were under some fascist government. Mm -hmm. But the brilliance of it is that yeah. the governments or the, the corporations or the people who, who benefit from that information, who sell us back our own shit, either because we get advertised or even we say, when you say, I don't want to see this advert, mm -hmm. that is really valuable for them. Because they're like, right, he doesn't have a car. Stop trying to sell him cars, sell him flip-flops instead. Mm -hmm. That is so brilliant because there's a quote that I heard the other day that said, if something is free, mm -hmm. you are the product. So when you go onto Instagram and you're like, yeah, this is free. I love this. It's free. I'm free. This is free. We're all free. No, because the advert for the Netflix trailer that you're watching has been paid for and you're now buying Netflix. So mm -hmm. no, it's not free. You just put your money into someone else's pocket who's then putting it into Instagram's pocket. And it's alarming to me that we're almost living in this kind of fascist, uh, dystopian, big brother control thing. And yet the difference is we take the pictures ourselves and we want people to look at them. Mm -hmm. It's not like big brother where we're trying to hide from the cameras. We carry cameras around in our pocket mm -hmm. and we put it on the table and Siri listens to it. And when we say certain words, it hears and goes, oh, He's talking about Coca-Cola again. When I'm with friends of mine who have kids and who have Alexa or Google, hey Google stuff at home, and they love it so much, and they're constantly talking to this machine, and they think it's a it's a benefit. I'm just like, really? You let? I mean, you, you're already letting so much into your house, mm. you know. But it will be the last place where you're actually really free, you know, or you we can be free. It's like you're your place where you can actually close the doors and and be for yourselves and these places will be getting more and more valuable to have uh and to be able to go to because we're unless of course you really are into publishing everything you're doing um, yeah but you talk about that from the point of view of someone who was born before the internet me too like i yeah. i was born <laughs> before the internet so i remember i was 18 before i had my first mobile phone The generation, yeah. my brother's kids, mm -hmm. they're at three years old, they're able to use an iPad and they're, they're not, they're, they're even tapping on pictures in books to zoom in. And mm -hmm. there's a different way of reading the world now that I wonder if in another 50 years, people won't question whether Alexa or Siri are in the room with them. They will be teaching their kids. It's already happening. So yeah, I, sure. I like what you're saying that especially the idea of a place where you're free from advertising mm -hmm. or being checked subliminally with Siri. Sometimes I'll say something and Siri will perk up and be like, Hey David, I'm like, shut fuck off Siri. I wasn't talking to you. Why are you listening to my conversation? Yeah. Mind your own business. But I think it's already becoming so domesticated mm. and so normal. Honestly, people use their phones like it's an extension of their body. And even when the phone is running out of battery, you get a slight anxiety or, mm. oh shit, I left my phone somewhere. You don't feel good without it. And I feel like that's the beginning of the end in a way. And actually two years ago, I went away to Mexico and I didn't use my phone. I did use my phone, but not for the internet. I turned, I went on to flight mode for five weeks. Yeah. So I used it as a camera, music, notes, That's it, a torch, but no internet for five weeks. And it had a massive effect on me, man. It really 
was like a meditation for five weeks. So much so that two years later, I'm still talking about it. I should yeah. do it more often, but yeah. I don't think since then I've been five days without the internet. I think it's already a thing, you know, like detox. Uh, yeah, detox. like, like when, um, when people cyber the, detox. Yeah, when, when the new year starts and people stop smoking and start making sports and stop drinking for four weeks or three. I wonder if there'll be like, in the future, you'll have digital vegans yeah. or like a, a, a new group of people. Because yeah. I already know a few people who've got rid of their smartphone and they've just got like an old mm -hmm. shit Nokia Because it's like, it's for phone calls and texts, that's it. Because mm. it's addictive. That thing of bringing out your, your um, it, the phone is like going through, you know when people, I see people using prayer beads when they're counting the Catholic mm -hmm. or the Muslim yeah. beads. Mm -hmm. I feel like the stream of Instagram is a bit like that. It's this, a thing that fills an anxious space. Like I've seen it before, especially you see in bars when, when there's couples dating or you're at a bar and it's a busy lab bar and you see people talking and then the girl walks away back to her friends the guy immediately brings out his phone or vice versa because the phone is a comfortable personal space mm -hmm. like nothing in this room matters because i'm my attention is on this text that i'm reading and i'm i think it's really interesting it's this way of um it's like a comfort thing to to make you feel like you're doing something that takes away the existential crisis of who am I, where am I, what am I doing? No, all those questions are answered because I'm flicking through Instagram mm -hmm. and it's so disposable. It's gone like that. Yeah. And that's part of the magic because it's immediate. It's so immediate. I can take a picture now of us here mm -hmm. and people in Japan see it and like it and share it, mm -hmm. but then it's gone. But does it actually help you as an as an artist to establish your name further and get into shows or sell work or as a visual artist definitely because and it's the best time to for a visual artist to be to have it as a tool because if you think about you know 50 years ago I remember at university even the way we documented our work with mm -hmm. with real film but slide film not even yeah. photos mm -hmm. we had to do it on slides yeah. um I, I remember my first digital camera and it had a, a worse pixel range than my phone does now. It's like digital photography can only help artists by mm. documenting it and presenting it to the world. Different for musicians is ru ruin the music industry because what do you do if you're a musician? You can't put a snapshot of your song up. You got to play the whole song. And as soon as it's on the internet, it's free. Whereas an artist, you can put a picture up of the finished piece, mm -hmm. picture up of the process, picture up of this thing that I just found on the street. And it creates like a sketchbook and people that are interested in your work suddenly get let, let into a world where it's like your own little TV show. Mm -hmm. So I think for a visual artist, even for a chef mm -hmm. or someone who's running a bar or making shoes, it's amazing because actually my website, I've been building it for four years. I almost don't know why I'm doing that because Instagram is a website. It's a, it's actually yeah, well, so easy to use. It's so immediate and it mm -hmm. creates this timeline, this narrative. And I think it's very beneficial, but also has traps. Mm -hmm. Really, I think the best things I make, you can't put on Instagram. Like you need to see it and you need to stand in front of it or even walk around it like a building that you paint, mm. it's hard to yeah. take a picture of a building and get a good justification yeah, of what we have it to, looks like. We have to kind of find a way to, to actually make this 
this this tool it's a, it's a good tool for artists I, I agree and we're talking about this you know in many many of the podcasts because it's a it's a very it's a very uh, uh, it's a burning topic for mm. for everyone and um, who is in visual arts and and it's always the, the problem is you don't necessarily get the people to see the work in person but also it's like a way to open up and at least give more people the opportunity to at least see something of it yeah. so that's like a balance i think with the website i say this a lot of time i think i my recommendation as a man who was born before the internet um and who started out with websites very early the website is your home it's your house you build it yourself you keep it everything else does not belong to you and who would want to scroll through your instagram feed to see what we did together 2015 you go on a website i mean and you see 2015 exhibition here and here and you go get there directly and you keep it in a place that is searchable and that is you know so that's like a this is like your your documentation of what you're doing whereas um uh, where that way, that way you can actually just, you, you can, you can build it so that people can experience what you want them to experience. Whereas with Instagram and, and Facebook and everything, the things are gone. You don't have to, you know, so like if you scroll down, did any, did you ever scroll back to your first entry? I mean, you know, I, I did it once actually. I was <laughs> yeah. looking for an image. Yeah which I didn't have. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's on Instagram. And I went way back to the beginning. Yeah, that's and, interesting. Uh, yeah. And that's actually, there's some memories I, I was tempted to delete, you know, yeah. like, I don't, I'm not that person anymore. Yeah. So why is this still part of my documented yeah. timeline? Um, but very rarely. Mm -hmm. I quite like that it's just immediate disposable. In fact, I think that's one of the things I like about the story is that it's gone in 24 hours mm. and that it's not precious. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you one thing I think about the internet and street art, which mm. is a funny term anyway, yeah. because most street art, people look at it on the internet. Mm -hmm. So what street are you looking on? And one of the things I find really powerful for myself yeah. is when I do something in the street and I don't take a picture of it. And not only that, but when someone else takes a picture of it and then I see it on the internet, I think, ah, it worked. Because in a way, street art mm -hmm. uses the language of memes. Memes are something that, now memes have always existed. You could argue maybe that the first cave paintings were memes. Yeah. It's a little mini communication that's usually a picture and a word combined to create a mm -hmm. big thing, like a joke, a bit like a joke. Man walks into a bar, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a simple thing. And what I find interesting is that 20 years ago, or however many years ago it was that I saw Banksy for the first time, yeah. there wasn't Instagram and Facebook. So when I first saw it, there was a genuine intrigue. Just who is this? What is this? Where is this? What, what am I seeing? Is this a advertising campaign? Is it art? Is it graffiti? Is it being paid for? I'm not sure. And it's interesting how I think the language of memes, which we see every day now, which combines advertising, personal expression, jokes, a bit like a political cartoon. We have a little image of the prime minister and a word underneath and it makes you laugh. That's now our daily way to express ourselves. It's like this instant gratification of here's what I mean. You've got it straight away. And I feel like that's almost ruined some street art mm -hmm. because that was like an analog meme. Banksy stuff, when I first saw it, that was like a meme. Mm -hmm. And now I see memes every day. I think it's maybe devalued his art a bit because that's the, it's almost like I'm seeing um, art as memes and memes as art. And actually I think, no, memes are really basic, uh, throwaway, very small images. Art should be something that's big, 
and it should be powerful and it should be like a, a piece of music that stays in your head all day. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, I think memes are almost, um, actually my friend put up a thing yesterday, Hayden Kay's Big Up. He's interesting artist because he makes art that sort of plays with advertising campaigns and memes, the language of memes. And he put up a piece and he said something about the greatest success for an artist is when your art gets made into a meme now. So he made this funny image and did a and it looks like a meme and maybe it will go viral and that will be a kind of success. I don't know. I think the best things that I've ever seen, whether it's in art or nature, mm -hmm. you can't take a picture of it. You know, when you try and take a picture of a sunset, now some people's phones are just ridiculous now. You take pictures and it's like, whoa, that's better than the sunset. Your photo is better than the sunset. But the best things, whether it's the best meal, mm -hmm. the best painting, mm -hmm. the best piece of music or the best sunset, you can't take a picture. And actually when you look at the picture, you have this thing of, nah, man, that wasn't it. That sunset wasn't it because yeah. there's something sublime about a sunset or a piece of a dish of food that's so good that it strikes a chord in your emotional being. When you eat that yeah. food, you're like, oh, that's the best thing I've ever eaten. You can't put that on Instagram. Yeah, but also why, where, where does this, now, now we're getting philosoph philosophical, of course, but why, why does, you, why does that have to be shared? Why isn't it just your moment? Don't, don't. The best things, yeah. the powerful things, like I said, the best street art, mm -hmm. you don't put on the Instagram. And actually you don't sign it. I don't sign stuff I do in the street. I mean, to be honest, I don't do much stuff in the street. I paint on old mattresses yeah. because it's easy. Yeah. And my neighborhood but, is full of old mattresses yeah. and it's become a sport for me. I carry a spray yeah. camera around because I just love that white space of an empty no mattress. No mattresses here. Have you ever painted on uh, a mattress? Yeah, I did one in Hamburg yeah. once, actually. <laughs> and they're everywhere, man. They're in every city, those mattresses. Yeah, I probably don't look for mattresses. But again, it's like a meme, isn't it? The mattress is this square space, mm -hmm. this blank space. And that thing of the mattress is just the perfect uh, canvas for something in the street. Because it's going to only last 24 hours, 48 hours, and then it's gone. Yeah. And no one cares if you paint on it. But I don't do a lot of stuff in the street, mm. unless it's a painting, like a mural. But I think one of the most powerful things for a street artist or rather an artist who chooses to do something in the street, because I think there's a difference. Mm. I wouldn't call myself a street artist. Yeah. Because I think if you're calling yourself a street artist, it's like you're setting yourself up for a certain... All these things have gotten so big, uh, it's blurred anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's a yeah. lot of power in an artist mm. making work in the street yeah. and not signing it. Because you're making something that's a collaboration with your environment. Mm -hmm. Like you find something, a, a wall that needs something. And that starts the art. The art starts by you finding that particular space. And it becomes a site-specific installation in a way. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a stencil or something that's cliche kind of street art, mm -hmm. I think it should start with the situation. And then I think you should be making it not as a media PR Instagrammable thing, but you give it as an offering to the street, the environment, and the people that will see it that you'll never meet. Because that is a very interesting dialogue. It's like me shouting a joke into the air. A man walks into a bar. And then I walk away and someone hears it two days later mm -hmm. and they go, and they laugh at that joke. And I think that's something so special in the unauthored art. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone sees them go, what is that? Who did that? When did that happen? And is that for me? That's radical. That is radical. And it's much more radical than 10,000 likes on Instagram. Yeah. 
It's a personal space that you're entering. And it's actually, it's kind of a form of magic. You're doing something for someone that you'll never meet. It's, um, that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I think, of course, everybody has to deal with this in their own way and how they really like to do things. Personally, I like to keep things to myself um, and others locked out, even though I'm, you know, so of course a very public person and I work publicly. And of course, I want everybody to listen to the podcast, for example. I want everybody to listen to this. And I'm giving away personal stuff as well. But other than that, you don't find personal stuff of me on the internet or Instagram, when I'm working in the studio, of course, you know, there'll be photos that I release from my work in the studio because it's also nice to share these things. And I have a lot of people who come up to me personally and say, oh, I saw that's really nice that you're sharing this. But I've never shared a picture of my youngest kid. I've never shared um, personal moments. I never share food, um, especially you know, food that I cook personally myself with with and for other people because it's my, it's, we get five people, six people, 10 people together and this is our moment. Um, And, uh, but that's my personal way how to deal with it. I know that I could be, you know, maybe that's the reason why I only have 2000, you know, because I'm not sharing anything really personal. Um, but, but, you know, when I'm working on a piece of art, for example, this is, I'm, I'm in that process and there has to be a moment where I can actually share this, uh, where I think it's, it's, it's a moment where, where I want to share this for this, ex for my last exhibition, for example, I shared photos from the studio and from the process. But I never shared a finished work before the opening of the show because I thought people that come to the opening of the show, and I know there's a tiny fraction of the people that I reach with my art through the internet, but say the 100 people that came to the opening were the first to actually see the works. And after that, you know, so that's fine. Now, now they're online. Everybody can take a look at them. But I thought it's a privilege if you come personally, you know, sort of to see the work and don't want to give away too much. Of Of course, I'm a businessman, so a bunch of my collectors, they get a PDF, uh, a preview uh, of these works. But that's different, you know, because we all have to live of what we're doing. But I think it's it's a very personal decision today how you deal with this, how you, um, how you present yourself uh, online. I personally, you know, I'm always happy when good friends, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a kid, but I love, you know, having, being a parent, uh, uh, you know, for, for many, many years, uh, uh, you know, sort of, I'm an old parent already. I have a kid that, you know, is 21 uh, years old. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, but I don't share it, you know, and now friends of mine, when they get babies and just when they're pregnant, I, I read this mostly on the internet now on Instagram. So, oh, great. Congratulations. That's great. And then the next thing, you know, the baby's born and it's, is my baby on the photo on the internet. And I remember when Melvin was born, Yvonne and I, we basically were just like so amazed by this thing happening to us. We wanted to be alone, just the three of us, because now we were three people and we didn't share anything to the out, nothing. My parents weren't even allowed to come in the first days. We, we invited them to come over the moment we felt comfortable to share this unique moment. And No one who shares his baby, you know, right out of the, the hospital or days later will ever experience the intimacy of family, of a newborn, of your baby in that way. And you may call me old fashioned and super romantic, which I think both are good things. <laughs> um, but, but that's how I see this, you know, and, and for me, that's probably why I sometimes struggle with, um, With the internet taking over so much of, of so much privacy and makes everything public. Because mm. a lot of things you don't even want to know. It's also the immediacy. Yeah. I think we live in a world now, without sounding too bold and general, but where everything's immediate. Yeah. So like 
if you take a video or a photo, especially of a kid, they want to see it immediately. Yeah. When I was a kid, first of all, we just didn't even have video cameras. That was like a really yeah. bizarre thing until I was a late teenager when you mm. suddenly had video cameras. But the film, obviously, you'd wait for it to be developed. Mm -hmm. So there's a, an amount of patience. You take a picture, you wait maybe a month, then you get it. And then it has more power because there's this one photo that actually is a tangible object. Now you take so many photos, you flick through them once, that's it. But it also goes into other realms. So, for example, television. When I was a kid, you waited till Friday night to watch that TV show. Mm -hmm. You all watched it at the same time. And when you saw your friends on Monday, you all knew the same catchphrase. You all knew the same bit. You'd all talk about it. Now you go onto Netflix or whatever, and you watch the entire series in two days. Yeah. You don't do anything. You just stay in bed for two days <laughs> and you watch 15 hours or yeah. something, ruin your life. And then you're like, oh, right, I just did that. And it's like this binge yeah. immediacy where like, I can have it now, so I will have it now. Yeah. And they encourage us. At the end of an episode, it's two in the morning. It's like, your next episode will begin in 10 seconds, yeah. whether you want it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you actually have to get up and you're like, no. oh, okay, just one more. Go on then, another hour of my life to watch some stupid TV show. But I think it's yeah. telling that the children mm. who are now growing up with that as normal, that, that they won't have any room to be nostalgic because mm. all they'll know is that, oh, I've been on Facebook since I was born. Yeah. And I wonder, because like, for example, my parents, gave me books of photos and records and mm -hmm. stuff that's not like these objects mm -hmm. that have tangibility that they fill a box in my house. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the next generation, they won't get that box of photos or videos. What they'll get is the logins to Facebook. So mm -hmm. when I die in my will, I'll say, right, for my children, I leave them all the passwords <laughs> for my Instagram. Well, actually, I don't even know the, pa the passwords for most of them, but um, yeah. they would inherit my Twitter account, yeah. which is a weird idea because you're, you're documenting your life on this immediate timeline. I just wonder how it would be a hundred years ago. Like imagine if certain people had Twitter a hundred years ago, like even if my parents, if my dad had Twitter when he was 30 something, what would I think now? It's like reading someone's diary. If you found your diary of someone, or imagine someone really famous, yeah. someone really dark, like if Hitler had Twitter. Yeah. But I mean, that's the weird thing about certain politicians now, yeah. that they're tweeting this real-time narrative. And you're like, no, don't tell us what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a certain time and a place to present your life. Yeah or your political views, but Twitter and Instagram, it's like here. And honestly, friends of mine who have babies, I get a bit bored of it. Because sure. they're obviously obsessed with this thing. And I'm sure if I have a kid, sure. I'm gonna be obsessed with it. But after a while, I'm like, okay, this is now not your Instagram account. This is now your baby's Instagram story. Oh, yeah. Some people have Instagram accounts for their babies. Yeah, so what happens? So that kid then grow up with a certain um, aesthetic choices that are being mm -hmm. made for them by their parents. I think it's interesting. I don't yeah. know how I feel about it. Yeah, I, I, um, I think this, the, this, this, this generation, or the past, gen our generation, the next generations, we are, we are, uh, you know, in a kind of a very weird situation. We can't. Nobody can actually sit still or do nothing for some time. I was last week. I I spent a lot of time in the hospital. You know, and uh, my, my my father was in, in a hospital, and I spent a lot of time there. And he was in a room with 
three men, three old men. My father's 81. There was this other guy, Russian, who was like in his late 70s. And there was this very interesting 99-year-old man who got a replacement for the battery for his, uh, what do you call it, the, for the heart? Uh, pacemaker. The pacemaker. Get a, you know, exchanging the battery for a pacemaker. And nothing's happening in a, in, a, in, a, in a hospital really during the day. Sometimes there's food, sometimes there's a doctor, sometimes there's a nurse. All these three older men, they were totally okay with doing nothing, just yeah. lying there. This being old bored. Man, being bored just, is a luxury, just, yeah. isn't it? And they were just, I was just like, fuck, we would get bored out of yeah. our minds. I could not, I could not lie here without, you know, having at least Netflix or something yeah. to take my mind off and, and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a completely different world that we're living in. Well, it's funny because I, I'm quite hyperactive, right? So I don't generally allow myself mm -hmm. to get bored. Yeah. because I'm constantly doing something. But one of the things I realized as time, like I said, I've made efforts to not use the internet for a month or, yeah. or taking myself into a place where I'm not using my phone. I turn it off, I put it in the other room. But one of the things I do is I almost create a situation where I am bored. Mm -hmm. Like as a meditation. I've tried to meditate. Mm -hmm. I think I have a few times, but it's not something I do easily because I'm so hyperactive. Yeah. One of the things I do is I draw. Because for me, I can draw on a bit of paper with a pen forever and I don't get bored, but it's like a healthy boredom. Mm -hmm. It's like, a, um, for me, it's a way of procrastinating, but it's like a, right, stop doing all the things that you need to do. Mm -hmm. Just sit down and just have a blank bit of paper and a pen. And I find that that's like one of the, one of my pleasures but it's also one of the hardest things for me to find time to do is just do nothing, like you said, but not sit there meditating, doing nothing. It's like somewhere between doing work and doing nothing. And try and do that every day as this way of pressing restart on my, yeah. my head. Because if I'm too in my phone, it's not good for me. It really, it makes too much go on in my brain mm. because I'm thinking about the here and now, I'm thinking about over there, over there, this project, that project. And it's almost like the internet's designed to hold your attention. Mm, yeah. As soon as I go off Facebook, Instagram's there. As soon as I go off Instagram, I've got an email. As soon as I come off email, WhatsApp. And it go round in circles until I'm like, oh shit, I just yeah. spent 25 minutes on the internet again. Well, you've, you've, you've just been spending one half hours not thinking about the, just thinking about the internet, but you're using it because we're completely offline while we're recording this. But yeah. I have, you know, on that, on that, on that, you know, so you're drawing, you have a very specific drawing style and there's a lot of words and a lot of text in, in, in what you do in your work. It's, I don't know, it's 50% of what you do in those pieces. How would you, you know, so it's always a lot of, where does the influence come from? Is it always, um, you said you're just hyperactive, but where does it, do the text come from in your in your work? I'm I'm very interested in text and like numerology and typography because for an, for a few reasons. But one is that typography and numbers it's the first abstraction. Mm -hmm. It's the first way of humans taking a meaning of something and turning it into a, a communicative tool not just words and numbers, but symbols as well. Um, the example that always comes to mind is the symbol of a heart. Mm -hmm. It's an abstraction. So you have the emotion, love. Somehow, sometime, someone said, right, I feel love in my heart. Not in my kidney, not in my brain, but in my heart. 
And then over time, that heart became the symbol that we all know. We all know it. It's yeah. a universal symbol yeah. for love. And words are similar. There's certain words that over time, this word, I, for example, me, the thing that means me is this I. And I also enjoy that, that you can then play games with that. So the word I also sounds like the, the thing you look through, your eye. So there's ways of like using words and symbols that can play games and tell stories in a way that pictures can't. I can write words and I can have two meanings or three meanings with the same word. I can put two words together and it's almost like putting two colors together. They vibrate. Mm -hmm. um, I can use a lyric from a David Bowie song and write something that I can't do better than David Bowie. He, he can write, planet earth is blue and there's nothing I can do. Now there's, there's something in that, that everyone's like, oh, David Bowie, Space Oddity, you know, glam rock. It goes back, there's a whole history there. Sure. Whereas I can't always, now if I do, if I come up with something, like a phrase, sometimes I come up with a phrase, mm -hmm. the thing I'm doing for Viva Conagra at the moment, the mural is titled, the person you love is 72% water. Mm -hmm. And it's just a fact that I heard, but somehow you take that sentence and it, it, there's a kind of magic with words. If I, if I say a word to you right now, I say elephant. Now you see an elephant in your head, that's magic. And I can actually read words written 2000 years ago, <laughs> before the internet, yeah. I can read a book and I can see the pictures mm -hmm. that that writer was talking about. So in many ways I'm a visual, I'm, I'm very, visual i'm always looking at pictures and symbols but in a way i see words and numbers as just other pictures and symbols but it's it can actually do more because it's an abstraction so if i see sure the symbol of a heart and i and i um put the, a symbol of an eye next to it and it, you start to read it like a story and i think that all artists storytellers mm. i think that all stories are a kind of art so the way you weave stories together once upon a time you set the stage and in a way paintings are stories or poems or songs i, I really think about paintings and drawings as songs mm -hmm. but there isn't a beginning and an end there's no full stop but there are rhymes and there are melodies and there are harmonies with colors shapes you know a blue square means something different to a yellow circle mm -hmm. and a yellow circle is the sun Everyone knows that, you know, and a red triangle is fire. So you can start to tell stories. And I suppose to answer your question, the influence of typography and words, it's me sort of playing games with what I've got. As an artist, what have you got? You've got color, you've got shapes, you've got lines, you've got texture and tone. But words are like another thing that you can use. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like this piece I'm doing in the hotel, there's no words in it. And the guy came in yesterday and went, oh, I thought you were gonna write stuff because of the stuff he's seen. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because he expected me to put little words in it. But because I'm in Germany, I'm thinking I'll do something yeah. in a hotel that's got this universal language. There's yeah. symbols that some are obvious, some are ambiguous. Mm -hmm. But he was like, no, I really want some words in it. So now I'm gonna write, <laughs> the person you love is 72% water on the wall. But it depends on the context. Like if I was to go to Ethiopia, I wasn't gonna use much English typography. But anytime I did, I tried to get someone to write it in Amharic as well, so that you can actually 
read it in both languages because how arrogant of me to write something in English on a wall in Ethiopia. Um, so sometimes words are good, sometimes they're not. Sometimes I go through phases of being very wordy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll make drawings and it's a, it's a way for me to conjure something, yeah. Also to record it for myself. Mm -hmm. I just write constantly. I'm always writing yeah. little, little things. Yeah, I can relate to that. I, yeah, I also have a notebook where I always constantly write stuff into it. I think I'm a frustrated writer, actually, because uh, I'm not very good at writing. Yeah. Uh, grammatically, mm -hmm. my spelling's terrible, probably a bit dyslexic. Um, and if I was a writer, mm -hmm. if I could write, I'd be a writer. Yeah. Same as if I was a musician, I'd make music. It just happens that I'm maybe the thing I'm best at is drawing yeah. and bringing images together, but the words slip in, you know, and, um, and I, I enjoy the way they, certain words look good, don't mm -hmm. they? Yeah, sure. Even the word look, when mm -hmm. I was a kid, I think it's one of my earliest memories of how to spell the word look, because the two O's are yeah. the eyes. Yeah, sure. And I remember learning that at like three or four years old. It was like one of the first words I learned to spell because of the way it looks and the visual, I'll tell you another interesting thing about the history of letters and words. Mm -hmm. The letter A, mm -hmm. capital A, the triangle with the line across it. Originally, that was a symbol of an ox, the other way up like mm -hmm. that, like a V with the line. Yeah. So originally, like thousands of years ago, when we were first writing things, that was the symbol for the animal that was plowing the field. And over time, the symbol became a letter. So there's also the same in Chinese. The word for house in Chinese looks like a little house. So some of these words and letters that we use every day, originally they were pictures. Mm. And what's interesting is that for many, many years, people couldn't read and write. The person who could read or write had serious power. Like that, that ability to record a story, write it down. And it even goes as far back as like the first magicians mm. were storytellers. And in fact, to cast a magic spell was the ability to spell. Mm -hmm. It was like, if you could read and write something, you had the power to gather people together, tell them a story. And when you said the word elephant, everyone sees an elephant. Yeah. That is magic. And actually that power is, is all around us. You know, that magic, when Apple or Facebook or Instagram say, share your story. Tell us a story. That's magic because they're like, yeah, I'll tell you my story. And then you video it and take pictures. And it's like they're um, farming your stories. Mm. I think it's really interesting, the storytelling element of being an artist. Uh, because there's a thin line between being an illustrator and telling you a story, but then also just conjuring something. Because I don't think a painting should explain everything. No, It's like a joke. If you explain a joke, it's not funny. I don't think you should always explain a piece of art, but it should be like a piece of music. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some pieces of music, when you listen to it, you don't need to understand why it says that or how it was written, but it makes you feel happy or yeah. sad and it conjures something like magic. Yeah, it's interesting because I grew up not, in, you know, sort of with a lot of English music where I didn't understand the text. We still tried to sing them. We understood probably only a few words um, that were in there when I was young. But each song meant something or means something to me mm. until today. And uh, even now, when I sometimes listen to songs that I've been listening to when I was 10, 12, 14 years old, um, 
And now I understand all the words. I try to avoid understanding them because I don't want it to get a different meaning, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, because as you said earlier, pretty nicely, most of the songs or all the songs we really like are about us, you know, they were written for me um, and for yeah. my, story, my, my moment right now. Yeah, I think with, uh, with, with words and paintings that, you know, so, uh, I think people look longer at a painting when there are words in it because they try to understand because they can actually read something beyond the pure painting, you know, especially people are not necessarily used to staring for half an hour at a painting to understand what it means, you know, so you give a different level in there. It's also dangerous sometimes because, you know, people read this one line and then they say, oh, okay, I got it. You know, so like if this, um, the person you love is 72% water, People read that and they say, oh, "Okay, I understand." And go past and don't even look at all the other stuff that's in there. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's not, it's, it's not. I don't mean it that is always happening, but that mm. of course is the danger of it. But I think it's a way of putting the audience into the work. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I title that mural "You Are Seventy Two Percent Water," mm -hmm. or rather, the human body is seventy two percent water. That's the that's the fact that I read. Yeah. And then I've twisted it. And rather than say, you're 72% water, I've said, the person you love is 72% mm -hmm. water. So I'm giving you more information. And in your head, I'm like, oh, yeah, my baby or my mother mm -hmm. are 72% water. I could also say the person you hate is 72% water. It's the same thing. But it's like you're using empathy or you're like transporting the person into the context of the work. Yeah. I think that's the maybe the art of good storytelling. Yeah. Whether it's a piece of music or a joke or a painting, it's when the audience see themselves in it or someone they love. I think that's maybe a good rule for trying to get people's attention, put them into the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see the nice thing about a podcast without visual help is that, you know, I think, if, I mean, at least for me, when I'm listening to podcasts that are in a similar situation like ours, like a dialogue, a discussion somewhere, you know, you, I always try to picture myself in that room. Well, no one knows I'm wearing a wedding dress, for example. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> a pink one, too. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but you came here all down the road. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, and, no, you, and you've got a sombrero on. Yeah, sure, all the time. <laughs> on top of the headphones. Um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. The, the audio space, is mm -hmm. uh, it, it does something maybe more than TV because yeah. you um, you have to fill in the gaps. You even sometimes see, if you don't know what someone looks like and you hear them talking, mm. you have a picture in your head of what they look like. And then sometimes if you see that, when you see the real picture of the person, you kind of forget what you imagine they look like. Um, it's an interesting power. And I'm really glad that my job being that I make pictures mm -hmm. means I can listen to audio because some people who are, I've got friends who edit music or they're musicians, or they edit movies, they can't listen to podcasts or music when they're working. They're 100%, I'm 100% into the work when I'm in the studio, but it's almost like I'm not. There's 90, there's 10% that's left for what I can consume with my ears. And uh, I feel so lucky, because I love a podcast, I love a radio show, I love audio books, and uh, I look forward to it. I go to the studio, I turn off the internet, and I listen to an audio book, it's like I'm learning while I'm working. It's yeah. great. So did, did we leave anything out today? I mean, of course, we left a lot of things out and probably I went down ways that, you know, uh, didn't expect. Viva Con Agua, basically, that's what I wanted to promote as much yeah. as possible because what they do in the world yeah. is incredible because I think I heard the other day they've now created fresh drinking water for 200,000 people. Did you know that? 
No. 200,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Uh, so that was the main reason. And say hello to you. It's nice to be back in your lovely gallery, Helium Cowboy. You showed it here in 2015, right? Indeed. Yeah. And I've been following what you do for years. It's great. And the first time we worked together was actually for Viva Canagua, the Milan yeah. Gallery, 2013. All, all due to you, mate. Yeah. You introduced me to the project. Right. So in July, I'm coming back okay. to do the mural with them yeah. and maybe... Uh, an exciting project, which I won't say now because no, I want to keep it under yeah. under wraps. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me. See ya.